Stories, fables, ghostly tales. A man who loves life, who is enjoying the lovely landscapes outside his home, is getting sicker and sicker. There's nothing around him that could be causing this illness, yet it persists. What is going on? What could be going on? Welcome, listeners, to your mystery tale. Oh yes, it's back. I've been getting more and more mystery tales to share with you. So for those of you who have sent them in via email, thank you so much. All of them and more are being shortlisted. And today is one of those stories. So if you have one, send it in so I can sneak it into my schedule. Today, though, this story has mystery, myth, and possibly madness. But what it doesn't have is what I have right now, a delicious dark tea. It's a kind of Russian caravan today, and goodness, it's so earthy and satisfying. It just makes me feel like I am a mountain with the amount of kick in this tea, goodness. So grab yourself your own hot drink, you brilliant people. And let's listen to a tale that's both old and unique. May 8. What a lovely day! I spent all the morning lying on the grass in front of my house, under the enormous plantain tree which covers and shades and shelters the whole of it. I like this part of the country. I am fond of living here because I am attached to it by deep roots. The profound and delicate roots which attach a man to the soil on which his ancestors were born and died, to their traditions, their usages, their food, the local expressions, the peculiar language of the peasants, the smell of the soil, the hamlets, and to the atmosphere itself. I love the house in which I grew up. From my windows I can see the sign which flows by the side of my garden. On the other side of the road, almost through my grounds, the great and wide sign which goes to Rhone and Havre, and which is covered with boats passing to and fro. On the left, down yonder, lies Rowen, with its blue roofs massing under pointed gothic towers. Innumerable are they, delicate or broad, dominated by the spire of the cathedral, full of bells, which sound through the blue air on fine mornings, sending their sweet and distant iron clang to me. Their metallic sounds, now stronger and now weaker, according as the wind is strong or light. What a delicious morning it was. About eleven o'clock, a long line of boats drawn by a steam tug as big as a fly, and which scarcely puffed while emitting its thick smoke, passed my gate. After two English schooners, whose red flags fluttered towards the sky, there came a magnificent Brazilian three-master. It was perfectly white and wonderfully clean and shining. I saluted it. I hardly know why, except that the sight of the vessel gave me great pleasure. May 12th. I have had a slight feverish attack for the last few days, and I feel ill, or rather, I feel low-spirited. Whence come those mysterious influences which change our happiness into discouragement, and our self-confidence into difference? One might almost say that the air, the invisible air, 
is full of unknowable forces whose mysterious presence we have to endure. I wake up in the best of spirits with the inclination to sing in my heart. I go down by the side of the water and suddenly, after walking a short distance, I return home wretched as if some misfortune were awaiting me there. Why? Is it a cold shiver which, passing over my skin, has upset my nerves and given me a fit of low spirits? Is it the form of the clouds or the tints of the sky? or the colours of the surrounding objects which are so changeable, which have troubled my thoughts as they pass before my eyes. Who can tell? Everything that surrounds us, everything that we see without looking at it, everything that we touch without knowing it, everything that we handle without feeling it, everything that we meet without clearly distinguishing it, has a rapid, surprising, and inexplicable effect upon us and upon our organs, and through them, on our ideas, and on our being itself. How profound of a mystery that the invisible is! We cannot fathom it with our miserable senses. Our eyes are unable to perceive what is either too small or too great, too near to or too far from us. We can see neither the inhabitants of a star nor of a drop of water. Our ears deceive us for they transmit to us the vibrations of the air in sonorous notes. Our senses are fairies who work the miracle of changing that movement into noise, and by that metamorphosis give birth to music, which makes the mute agitation of nature a harmony. So with our sense of smell, which is weaker than that of a dog, and so with our sense of taste, which can scarcely distinguish the age of a wine. <sighs> If we only had organs which could work other miracles in our favour, what a number of fresh things we might discover around us. May 16. I am ill, decidedly. I was so well last month. I am feverish, horribly feverish, or rather I am in a state of feverish innovation, which makes my mind suffer as much as my body. I have without ceasing the horrible sensation of some danger threatening me, the apprehension of some coming misfortune, or of approaching death, a persistent, which is no doubt an attack of some illness still unnamed, which germinates in the flesh and in the blood. May 18. I have just come from consulting my medical man, for I can no longer get any sleep, he found that my pulse was high, my eyes dilated, my nerves highly strung, but no alarming symptoms. I must have a course of shower baths and of bromide of potassium. May 25. No change. My state is really very peculiar. As the evening comes on, an incomprehensible feeling of disquietude seizes me, just as if night concealed some terrible menace toward me. I dine quickly, and then try to read, but I do not understand the words, and can scarcely distinguish the letters. Then I walk up and down my drawing room, oppressed by a feeling of confused and irresistible fear, a fear of sleeping, and a fear of my bed. About ten o'clock, I go up to my room. As soon as I have entered, I lock and bolt the door. I am frightened. Of what? 
up till the present time I have been frightened of nothing. I open my cupboards and look under my bed. I listen. To what? How strange it is that a simple feeling of discomfort, of impeded or heightened circulation, perhaps the irritation of a nervous center, a slight congestion, a small disturbance in the imperfect and delicate functions of our living machinery, can turn the most light-hearted of men into a melancholy one and make a coward of the bravest. Then I go to bed, and I wait for sleep as a man might wait for the executioner. I wait for its coming with dread, and my heart beats and my legs tremble while my whole body shivers beneath the warmth of the bedcloths, until the moment when I suddenly fall asleep as a man throws himself into a pool of stagnant water in order to drown. I do not feel this perfidious sleep coming over me as I used to, but a sleep which is close to me and watching me, which is going to seize me by the hand to close my eyes and annihilate me. I sleep a long time, two or three hours perhaps, then a dream. No, a nightmare lays hold on me. I feel that I am in bed and asleep. I feel it. I know it. And I feel also that somebody is coming close to me, is looking at me, touching me, is getting onto my bed, is kneeling on my chest, is taking my neck between his hands and squeezing it. Squeezing it with all his might in order to strangle me. I struggle, bound by that terrible powerlessness which paralyzes us in our dreams. I try to cry out, but I cannot. I want to move. I cannot. I try, with the most violent efforts and out of breath, to turn over and throw off this being which is crushing and suffocating me. I cannot. And then suddenly I wake up shaken and bathed in perspiration. I light a candle and find that I am alone. And after that crisis, which occurs every night, I at length fall asleep and slumber, tranquilly till morning. June 2nd. My state has grown worse. What is the matter with me? The bromide does me no good, and the shower baths have no effect whatsoever. Sometimes, in order to tire myself out, Though I am fatigued enough already, I go for a walk in the forest of Raumer. I used to think at first that the fresh light and soft air impregnated with the odour of herbs and leaves would instill new life into my veins and impart fresh energy to my heart. One day I turned into a broad ride in the wood and then I diverged towards La Bouille through a narrow path between two rows of exceedingly tall trees which placed a thick green, almost black roof between the sky and me. A sudden shiver ran through me, not a cold shiver, but a shiver of agony. And so I hastened my steps, uneasy at being alone in the wood, frightened, stupidly and without reason, at the profound solitude. Suddenly it seemed as if I were being followed, that somebody was walking at my heels, close, quite close to me, near enough to touch me. I turned round suddenly, 
but I was alone. I saw nothing behind me except the straight, broad ride, empty and bordered by high trees, horribly empty. On the other side also, it extended until it was lost in the distance, and looked just the same. Terrible. I closed my eyes. Why? And then I began to turn round on one heel very quickly, just like a top. I nearly fell down, and opened my eyes. The trees were dancing round me, and the earth heaved. I was obliged to sit down. Then, nah, I could no longer remember how I had arrived. What a strange, strange idea. I did not the least know. I started off to the right and got back in the avenue which had led me into the middle of the forest. June 3. I have had a terrible night. I shall go away for a few weeks, for no doubt a journey will set me up again. July 2nd. I have come back, quite cured, and have had a most delightful trip into the bargain. I have been to Mont saint michel which I had not seen before. What a sight when one arrives as I did at Avranches towards the end of the day. The town stands on a hill and I was taken into the public garden at the extremity of the town. I uttered a cry of astonishment. An extraordinarily large bay lay extended before me as far as my eyes could reach between two hills which were lost to sight in the mist and in the middle of this immense yellow bay. Under a clear golden sky, a peculiar hill rose up, somber and pointed in the midst of the sand. The sun had just disappeared, and under the still flaming sky stood out the outline of the fantastic rock which bears on its summit a picturesque monument. At daybreak, I went to it. The tide was low, as it had been the night before and I saw that wonderful abbey rise up before me as I approached it. After several hours of walking, I reached the enormous mass of rock which supports the little town, dominated by the great church. Having climbed the steep and narrow street, I entered the most wonderful gothic building that has ever been erected to God on earth, large as a town and full of low rooms which seemed buried beneath vaulted roofs and of lofty galleries supported by delicate columns. I entered this gigantic granite jewel, which is as light in its effect as a bit of lace, and is covered with towers, with slender belfries to which spiral staircases ascend. The flying buttresses raise strange heads that bristle with chimeras, with devils, with fantastic animals, with monstrous flowers, are joined together by finely carved arches to the blue sky by day, and to the black sky by night. When I had reached the summit, I say to the monk that accompanied me, Father, how happy you must be here! And he replied, It is very windy, Monsieur. And so we began to talk while watching the rising tide, which ran over the sand and covered it with a steel cuirass. And then the monk told me stories, all the old stories belonging to the place, legends, nothing but legends. One of them struck me forcibly. The country people, those belonging to the Mornette, declared that at night one can hear talking going on in the sand, and also that two goats bleat 
one with a strong, the other with a weak voice. Incredulous people declare that it is nothing but the screaming of the seabirds, which occasionally resembles bleatings, and occasionally human lamentations. But belated fishermen swear that they have met an old shepherd whose cloak-covered head they can never see, wandering on the sand between two tides, round the little town placed so far out of the world. They declare he is guiding and walking before a he-goat with a man's face and a she-goat with a woman's face, both with white hair, who talk incessantly, quarrelling in a strange language, and then suddenly cease talking in order to bleat with all their might. Do you believe it? I asked the monk. I scarcely know, he replied, and I continued. If there are other beings besides ourselves on this earth, how comes it that we have not known it for so long a time, or why have you not seen them? How is it that I have not seen them? He replied, Do we see the hundred thousandth part of what exists? Look here, there is the wind, which is the strongest force in nature. It knocks down men and blows down buildings, uproots trees, raises the sea into mountains of water, destroys cliffs, and casts great ships onto the breakers. It kills, it whistles, it sighs, it roars. But have you ever seen it? And can you see it? Yet it exists for all that. I was silent before this simple reasoning. That man was a philosopher, or perhaps a fool. I could not say which exactly, so I held my tongue. What he had said had often been in my own thoughts. July 3. I have slept badly. Certainly there is some feverish influence here, for my coachman is suffering in the same way as I am. When I went back home yesterday, I noticed his singular paleness, and I asked him, What is the matter with you, Jean? The matter is that I never get any rest, and my nights devour my days. Since your departure, Monsieur, there has been a spell over me. However, the other servants are all well, but I am very frightened of having another attack myself. July 4. I am decidedly taken again, for my old nightmares have returned. Last night I felt somebody leaning on me who was sucking my life from between my lips with his mouth. Yes, he was sucking it out of my neck like a leech would have done. Then he got up, satiated, and I woke up so beaten, crushed, and annihilated that I could not move. If this continues for a few days, I shall certainly go away again. July 5th. Have I lost my reason? What has happened? What I saw last night is so strange that my head wanders when I think of it. As I do now every evening, I had locked my door. Then, being thirsty, I drank half a glass of water, and I accidentally noticed that the water bottle was full up to the cut glass stopper. Then, I went to bed and fell into one of my terrible sleeps, from which I was aroused in about two hours by a still more terrible shock. Picture to yourself a sleeping man who is being murdered, who wakes up with a knife in his chest, a gurgling in his throat, is covered with blood, can no longer breathe, 
is going to die and does not understand anything at all about it. There, you have it. Having recovered my senses, I was thirsty again, so I lighted a candle and went to the table on which my water bottle was. I lifted it up and tilted it over my glass, but nothing came out. It was empty. It was completely empty. At first, I could not understand it at all. Then suddenly, I was seized by such a terrible feeling I had to sit down, or rather, fall into a chair. Then I sprang up with a bound to look about me. Then I sat down again, overcome by astonishment and fear in front of the transparent crystal bottle. I looked at it with fixed eyes, trying to solve the puzzle, and my hands trembled. Somebody had drunk the water, but who? I? I without any doubt. It could surely only be I. In that case, I was a somnambulist, was living without knowing it, that double mysterious life which makes us doubt whether there are not two beings in us, whether a strange, unknowable, and invisible being does not, during our moment of mental and physical torpor, animate the inert body, forcing it to a more willing obedience than it yields to itself. Oh, who will understand my horrible agony? Who will understand the emotion of a man, sound in mind, wide awake and full of sense, who looks in horror at the disappearance of a little water while he was asleep through the glass of a water bottle? And I remained sitting until it was daylight, without venturing to go to bed again. July 6th. I am going mad. Again, all the contents of my water bottle have been drunk during the night. Or rather, I have drunk it. <sighs> Is it I? Who could it be? Who? Oh, God. Am I going mad? Who will save me? July 10th. I have just been through some surprising ordeals. Undoubtedly, I must be mad. And yet, on July 6th, before going to bed, I put some wine, milk, water, bread, and strawberries on my table. Somebody drank, I drank, all the water and a little of the milk, but neither the wine, nor the bread, nor the strawberries were touched. On the 7th of July, I renewed the same experiment, with the same results, and on July 8th, I left out the water and the milk, and nothing was touched. Lastly, on July 9th, I put only water and milk on my table, taking care to wrap up the bottles in white muslin and to tie down the stoppers. Then I rubbed my lips, my beard, and my hands with pencil lead, and went to bed. Deep slumber seized me, soon followed by a terrible awakening. I had not moved, and my sheets were not marked. I rushed to the table. The muslin around the bottle remained intact. I undid the string, trembling with fear. All the water had been drunk, and so had the milk. Ah, oh, great God! I must start for Paris immediately. July 12th, Paris. I must have lost my head during the last few days. I must be the plaything of my enervated imagination. Unless I really am a somnambulist, 
or I have been brought under the power of one of those influences, hypnotic suggestion, for example, which have known to exist but hitherto been inexplicable. In any case, my mental state bordered on madness, and 24 hours of Paris sufficed to restore me to my equilibrium. Yesterday, after doing some business and paying some visits, which instilled fresh and invigorating mental air into me, I wound up my evening at the Theatre Francis. A drama by Alexander Dumas the Younger was being acted, and his brilliant and powerful play completed my cure. Certainly, solitude is dangerous for active minds. We need men who can think and can talk around us. When we are alone for a long time, we people space with phantoms. I returned along the boulevards to my hotel in excellent spirits. Amid the jostling of the crowd, I thought, not without irony of my terrors and surmises of the previous week, because I believed, yes, I believed that an invisible being lived beneath my roof. How weak our mind is. How quickly it is terrified and unbalanced as soon as we are confronted with a small, incomprehensible fact. Instead of dismissing the problem with, we do not understand because we cannot find the cause, we immediately imagine terrible mysteries and supernatural powers. July 14. Fetti of the Republic, I walked through the streets and the crackers and flags amused me like a child. Still, it is very foolish to make merry on a set date by government decree. People are like a flock of sheep, now steadily patient, now in ferocious revolt. Say to it, amuse yourself, and it amuses itself. Say to it, go and fight with your neighbor, and it goes and fights. Say to it, vote for the emperor, and it votes for the emperor. Then say to it, vote for the republic and it votes for the Republic. Those who direct it are stupid, too, but instead of obeying men, they obey principles, a course which can only be foolish, ineffective, and false, for the very reason that principles are ideas which are considered as certain and unchangeable, whereas in the world one is certain of nothing, since light is an illusion and noise is deception. July 16th. I saw some things yesterday that troubled me very much. I was dining at my cousin's, Madame Sable, whose husband is Colonel of the 76th Chaucer's at Limoges. There were two young women there, one of whom had married a medical man, Dr. Parent, who devotes himself a great deal to nervous diseases and to the extraordinary manifestations which just now experiments in hypnotism and suggestion are producing. He related to us at some length the enormous results obtained by English scientists and the doctors of the medical school at Nancy, and the facts which he adduced appeared to me so strange that I declared that I was altogether incredulous. We are, he declared, on the point of discovering one of the most important secrets of nature. I mean to say, one of its most important secrets on this earth, for assuredly there are some up in the stars yonder of a different kind of importance. Ever since man has thought, since he has been able to express and write down his thoughts, he has felt himself close to a mystery which is impenetrable to his coarse and imperfect senses, and he endeavors to supplement the feeble penetration of his organs by the efforts of his intellect. As long as that intellect remained in its elementary stages, 
This intercourse with invisible spirits assumed forms which are commonplace though terrifying. Thence sprang the popular belief in the supernatural, the legends of wandering spirits, of fairies, of gnomes, of ghosts, I might even say the conception of God, for our ideas of the workman, creator, from whatever religion they may have come down to us, are certainly the most medical, the stupidest, and the most unacceptable inventions that ever sprang from the frightened brain of any human creature. Nothing is truer than what Voltaire says. If God made man in his own image, man has certainly paid him back again. But for rather more than a century, men seem to have had a presentiment of something new. Mesmer and some others have put us on an unexpected track. And within the last two or three years especially, we have arrived at results that are really surprising. My cousin, who was also very incredulous, smiled, and Dr. Parent said to her, Would you like me to try and send you to sleep, madam? Yes, certainly. She sat down in an easy chair, and he began to look at her fixedly, as if to fascinate her. I suddenly felt myself somewhat discomposed. My heart beat rapidly and I had a choking feeling in my throat. I saw that Madame Sable's eyes were growing heavy. Her mouth twitched and her bosom heaved and at the end of ten minutes, she was asleep. Quick, quick, go behind her, the doctor said to me. So I took a seat behind her. He put a visiting card into her hands and said to her, This is a looking glass. What do you see in it? She replied, I see my cousin. What is he doing? He is twisting his moustache. And now, he is taking a photograph out of his pocket. Whose photograph is it? His own. That was true. For the photograph had been given me that same evening at the hotel. What is his attitude in this portrait? He is standing up with his hat in his hand. She saw these things in that card, in that piece of white pasteboard, as if she had seen them in a looking glass. The young woman was frightened and exclaimed, That is quite enough, quite, quite enough. But the doctor said to her authoritatively, You will get up at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. Then you will go and call on your cousin at his hotel and ask him to lend you the five thousand francs which your husband asks of you, and which he will ask for when he sets out on his coming journey. Then he woke her up. On returning to my hotel, I thought over this curious scene, and I was assailed by doubts, not as to my cousin's absolute and undoubted good faith, for I had known her as well as if she had been my own sister ever since she was a child, but as to a possible trick on the doctor's part. Had not he, perhaps, kept a glass hidden in his hand, which he showed to the young woman in her sleep at the same time as he did the card? Professional conjurers do things which are just as singular. However, I went to bed, and this morning, at about half past eight, I was awakened by my footman, who said to me, Madame Sable has asked to see you immediately, Monsieur. I dressed hastily and went to her. She sat down in some agitation, with her eyes on the floor, and without raising her veil, said to me, 
My dear cousin, I am going to ask a great favor of you. What is it, cousin? I do not like to tell you, and yet I must. I am in absolute want of five thousand francs. What? You? Yes, I, or rather my husband, who has asked me to procure them for him. I was so stupefied that I hesitated. I asked myself whether she had not really been making fun of me with Dr. Parrot. If it were not merely a very well-acted farce which had been got up beforehand. On looking at her attentively, however, my doubts disappeared. She was trembling with grief. So painful was this step to her, and I was sure that her throat were full with sobs. And so ends part one of the mystery classic tale. Can you guess what this one is? Don't stress, you smart cookies, because I know some of you out there do know it. A challenge to you listeners. <laughs> and there's part two for you on its way as well. So you have two episodes to guess this one. Now, what do you think is happening to our protagonist? What does the introduction of the Doctor mean? Why is he ill now at home, but when he leaves he gets better? And how the heck is that water disappearing? Well, we'll find out on the next episode, so stick with me then, my creepy ghouls and ghasts. And as always, till next time.